I do want to just share with you a couple of really brief announcements. The first is, uh, as you leave here today, on the 17th of September, it's a Saturday, we are going to be uh, working together in the city of Gary. There's a group called Together for the Region, and uh, it's just a bunch of churches. We're trying to get as many people together as possible. The city of Gary is having an actual work day where different teams and groups of people can go out in the community, clean up, do all kinds of different stuff, and we are coming together together for the region as a group of churches to do that. There's a sign-up sheet out there in the foyer. I just really, really encourage you to, to sign up for that. We'll get you some more information. It is from 8 to 1. And uh, if the incentive of just, you know, just generally doing a good thing is not enough, there will be Chick-fil-A for lunch. And so uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, to sign up and, uh, and be a part of that. I also want to encourage you to download the app. I know that we talk about that a lot, but uh, we're trying to ramp up our communication and simplify our communication just a little bit in the life of the church. And it would be fantastic if you would be willing to do that. All right, football season's about to start, so everybody stand up. I know you were just standing, so everybody stand up. I've gotta teach you the Green Bay Packers cheer. I'm just kidding. Find somebody, tell them they're good looking, you're glad to see them today, shake their hand, greet somebody near you. It's right over there on the speaker. Oh, he's got it right there. Are you, are you in the first service? I can't remember. You're coming up to do it? I don't, you put it in, because I didn't. The yes. slide, okay, all right. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> all right, if you want to take your seats. All right. So I want to, I want to put a, a picture on the screen for you to take a look at. Uh, most all of you know that there's a partnership that we have with uh, a church in Palmarcito, Guatemala. And so I started going to Guatemala way back in 2015. And so uh, one of the things that I immediately noticed is when you land in Guatemala City, but then particularly when you start going out these roads outside of the city and you see all these buildings, all the buildings, most of them, are made out of concrete and rebar. And so rebar is these steel rods that just run up. And if you're in a volcano slash earthquake zone, you use a lot of rebar. And so all these buildings have all this rebar in them. But then I started noticing a ton of these buildings have rebar sticking out the top, just like dangerously, like sticking out the top. And you can see it like on that picture right there where the little arrows are. You see it, and you see that all over Guatemala, and not just in Guatemala, I found it, it's all over Latin America and Central America. You see these buildings that are built that way. And so I asked at the time a guy named Elmer Juarez, he was kind of our director, and I just said, hey man, like you've, I've even taken up on these roofs and seen this rebar as we were looking at construction things and stuff. So I said, why do they have the rebar sticking out? And he said, well, there's two reasons. And so the first reason sounds legit. Okay, the first reason is, well, if you're going to build a second story, then you already have the way to attach the new rebar to the old rebar, and so it's always there. But then it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and see everybody evidently wants to build a second story but never does. They're rusted, some of them are bent, they're, they're rusted enough to be breaking. And so I asked again, well, 
I mean, when do they plan to do that? And Elmer laughed at me, and he said, honestly, they probably don't, but evidently, and I, I just have to take their word for it, there's a certain tax code that you can't be charged a certain tax code if your building is always under construction. And so if they always intend to finish it, if they always intend to continue with the construction, that rebar comes out of the roof. Not as noble as, hey, we're going to build a second story at some point, but no, we're, we're kind of doing this to get out of the tax bracket. That's why they do that. So today, what we're talking about is seeing things to completion. Seeing things to completion. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 through 12. So these three weeks, we've been in this stewardship series, one in generosity. One in generosity. And so we've been asking this question, you see it on the screen, what does it look like for the church? What does it look like for you and me, us? What does it look like for us to be one in generosity, to participate in this grace of generosity that Paul talks about in Corinthians? What does it look like for us to do that together as one? So what's going on in Corinthians, just to recap just really quickly, um, is he's challenging this church in a place called Corinth to give to a need in the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church was really suffering. Uh, There's a lot of persecution. The Romans were really hard on them. The religious establishment didn't like the new movement that was going on. People were losing their businesses. Families were being pulled apart. It was not a good day to be a Christian in Jerusalem. And so they were really, really suffering, suffering hugely. And so what happened was Paul sent people out, and we're going to take this offering from other churches and other areas. The Corinthian church was one of those. But then he highlights this other church. It's the Macedonian church. And the reason he highlights the Macedonian church as he's talking to the Corinthian church is because the Macedonian church was just an incredible example of generosity. They gave to the same offering that the Corinthian church had been asked to give to for Jerusalem. But when you really strip everything away, the Macedonians actually probably deserved to receive an offering too. I mean, they, they were in poverty. They were in abstract, you know, they were abject poverty. It was, it was really, really bad. And they really didn't have anything to give. But even after they had given, they even sent word to Paul and said, can we give more? They like begged for the opportunity to give sacrificially to the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, So Paul then, after he shares the example of the Macedonians with the Corinthian church, who had decided not to participate in the offering anymore, he reached out and he said, here's the real example for your giving. It's actually Jesus. It's Jesus. And we talked about that last week. The fact that genuine love looks like giving the way that Jesus gave. Now, if you're new or if you missed the last two weeks, it would be helpful to uh, jump online. In fact, uh, there's going to be a new online feature coming out uh, before too long. Pastor Ben and I uh, are going to be talking about what it looks like to have a podcast where we can go a little bit deeper into some of the things that we're talking about and stuff. But I would encourage you to go online, go to Spotify, go to YouTube or whatever, and, and kind of pick up if you've missed some of these things. But what we see Paul doing here in these passages that we're going to look at is really kind of getting to the nuts and bolts of what does it look like to be generous? How do you do it? The practical stuff, the follow-through. If you want to live a life of generosity, and and this is just a fact, if you're going to do this, if you're going to live a life of generosity, if we as a church are going to model what this looks like, 
It does not happen by accident. You don't just stumble into this. It's a very intentional thing. So quickly, let's look at 2 Corinthians 8, verses 10 through 12. You see it on the screen. Paul says this, Here's my judgment about what's best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable, according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now, the gist of this is really, really simple. Uh, Paul's basically saying, hey, guys, uh, we went around, we asked for the offering. You raised your hand. You said, count us in. Count us in. Now, let's see that through. What does it look like for you to carry out what you said you were going to do? So he's making a point. Look at verse 10. He says, the person who is going to benefit from this, it is in your best interest to see this through. It will benefit you if you actually follow through on what you said you would do. Now, I kind of take a logical look at things, so that seems backwards to me. That seems backwards to me. How does giving to someone else or giving to something else benefit me? And again, I'm, I'm a real simple dude. I have a dollar. I give you a dollar. Guess who doesn't have a dollar? Me, right? I don't have a dollar. So Jesus is quoted in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Again, dollar, no dollar. So how does this work? Why does this make sense? What's the blessing in this? He's establishing a principle when it comes to our giving. And it's not just giving of our finances. I want to make sure we understand that. This is just giving of ourselves, giving of our time, our energy, anything. We do it by faith. We do it by faith. Again, uh, this is how my brain is wired. When I give to something, I want to see outcome, don't you? I think that's very natural. If I'm going to give to something, if I'm going to put my resources into something, I want to see how that plays out. I want to see how that benefits something. Sometimes when I give money, I want to give money and see something in response, right? I want to see something in return. Okay? That's how a lot of people give. In fact, that's how a lot of people give to churches. Whether or not we admit it, the church in North America has discipled people to consume religious goods and services. And, and I know that that sounds cruel, uh, but it's also true. Consumers, and I want you to think about this, pay for what they want, and consumers pay for what they consume. Or, look at it this way, if a service is still given to you anyway, even if you don't pay for it, why would you pay for it? If it's still going to be there anyway. The problem is that has nothing to do with faith. It has zero to do with faith. Christianity is not a good. It's not a service. What we do here, this is not a spectator sport. This isn't a pick and choose, and I'll take some from this and take some from that, and then I'll put together my own thing. We, you and I, this, this is a living body, a living body. It's not something you and I consume. It's who we are, okay? When we understand that, that we're in this together, giving becomes something else entirely. It becomes a practice of our faith, and it becomes something that we do by our faith. 
It's an act of faith. So how many of you struggle with that? I think it's one thing to agree with the principle. I think it's another thing altogether to experience it. Uh, For a lot of people, they want the experience first, and then I'll make the steps of faith. And here's what I know. If you and I do not act in faith, we're the ones that miss out. If you and I don't act in faith, we're the ones that miss out. We settle for far less than what God has for us. There's a guy named C.S. Lewis. He wrote this once. He said, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And he says this, We are far too easily pleased. In other words, we aim too low. I, uh, I get convicted most when I think about our church, when I think about real life uh, as your pastor, when, when all of a sudden God tries to take some of the things that I think maybe we need to be doing up a notch. I get really nervous. <laughs> and, and that convicts me a little bit. Uh, my default in all transparency is I aim low. If you always aim low, right, then it's like rewarding when all of a sudden you get a little higher than low, right? If you always aim low, it's so much more achievable. I'm not a born risk taker. That is not who I am. I don't take all kinds of different risks. And maybe you can relate with that. But that gets really not great when we aim low in our personal lives as well. Uh, And sometimes that's reflected in all kinds of things in our lives, particularly our giving. So let me say that another way. And I I want you to pay close attention. Jesus is inviting us into something greater than what you and I understand. Why emphasize that? Because ultimately the statistics say that we don't understand this. According to an organization called Nonprofit Source, one out of every three regular church attenders do not give anything. One out of three do not give anything. Uh, 75 to 90% do not participate in consistent giving. 75 to 90% don't participate in consistent giving. Uh, We'll get to what that means in a bit, but on a flip side, if you're in leadership in this church, pay attention. Those statistics show another reality. 64% of those who attend church regularly say that their trust of the church affects their giving. In other words, if the church lacks integrity, if the leadership of the church lacks integrity, if I lack integrity when it comes to how I manage my finances, when it comes to how we manage our finances, our good stewards or not in the church, affects whether or not people trust us enough to give. If we don't, it's a no-go. Now, some of you are probably thinking, you know, Pastor Rich, I knew. I knew we would get to this point where you'd play the guilt card and all of a sudden you'd start talking about this kind of stuff. I learned something a long time ago. I can't make anybody feel anything. I can't do that. That's not my wheelhouse. I'll be the first to tell you that stats uh, don't tell the whole story and you know that. You know that. Uh, I hesitated actually to use these statistics because I thought certainly somebody in their brain, the switch is going to go and they'll be like, Yeah, I knew he was going to go there. And you and I both know statistics can be manipulated for just about anything. Uh, But 
I'm trusting you know my heart at this point. And also, they do give us a little bit of a snapshot. Most of these statistics, I think, that I just shared with you, represent a people who actually do want to give. They do want to give. So can I encourage you for a second? People have struggled with this way, way back all the way to the Corinthian church. That's why Paul is challenging them. A year earlier, the Corinthian church had put themselves out there. So Paul, he does not identify why. We don't know what exactly happened, but he becomes very clear at some point that the commitment that they had made just didn't seem worth keeping anymore. Something had taken place. And we should note, though, that they did begin really, really well. They did begin well. They wanted to give. They communicated to Paul, we want to. We raised our hands. We are ready to be a part of what's going on. So Paul is saying to them, if the readiness is there, if the desire for you is there, then see it through. Let's, let's, let's do this now. Partner with Jesus and trust him as you give. And I want you to notice, Paul is not asking them to burden themselves. He never asks them to do that. He's asking them to help somebody else who has a burden, but he's not asking them to burden themselves. In fact, he reiterates what you and I see throughout all of Scripture. He talks about proportional giving. He's not asking them to give what they do not have. That's bad stewardship. When you try to give something you do not have. He challenges them to give out of what they do have, not out of what they don't have. So the question for us really is, do we give proportionately? Do we give in the same way? Let me rephrase that. God has poured a pool of resource into your life. And for some, re- some people, that's, that's like an Olympic-sized pool, right? Maybe you're sitting here, you're like, no, mine's like a kiddie pool, okay? You're like, Pastor, I got a puddle. That's what I have. Whatever it is, God has poured that resource into your life. Are you a container of that? Or can God use you a little bit as a conduit of that resource? If you haven't figured out, this is the message in this series where we get into some details and some practicalities. Um, Okay, Rich, you know, I know I should give. I want to give. I want to join with others as we're one in this. So how do I do this? How do I do this? If you want the straight answer, Paul gives it. You see it on the screen. According to your means. That's what Paul says. That's how you should give, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. So what does that mean? What in the, like, untangle that. Most churches talk about tithing, <clears throat> which is a biblical term for 10% of your income. So in fact, uh, a lot of time you hear about tithes and offerings, tithes and offerings. What are those? Well, the tithe is that percentage-based, consistent giving through the church. That's what that tithe is. The pattern in Scripture that you see is is people are challenged to bring their first fruits, the first 10%, the first fruits, and historically, that's the church, right? That's, That's percentage giving. Offerings, though, that's different. When you hear the words tithes and offerings, offerings are different. Offerings are usually a one-time giving moment, or maybe it's some kind of giving that has an end goal 
in mind, like a building program, or if we were gonna start a facility improvement fund here, we were gonna talk about different projects, those offerings have kind of a, an expiration date, okay? Or like what we're gonna do next week. This is a good illustration of what an offering looks like. So on the screen here, you're gonna see a couple. And uh, this is Reverend Vidal and Marie Cole. They are missionaries from West Africa. They're gonna be with us actually next Sunday. And uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, missionaries every couple of years go on a tour. They go to different local organizations, different local churches, and they, uh, they share what God is doing in their areas. This couple manage and lead and direct all the English-speaking churches on the west side of Africa. They have a huge responsibility. They happen to be in the United States right now, and they're coming through. So they're going to share with us next week. One of the reasons that they do that is missions work isn't free. And it costs a lot of money to take the gospel all over the world. And so what they do is they create awareness, but at the same time, too, what we're going to do at the end of the service next week is we're going to receive an offering. We will literally pass the buckets. We will receive an offering. So I'm, I'm asking you to pray and be prepared for that. But that offering will then go to further their work on the west side of Africa. And so that's, again, an example of an offering. So there's tithes. And then there's offering. Now, <clears throat> this would be a good time to remind you, and I did this last year, how I operate regarding your giving and the giving that takes place through real life. Uh, I, your pastor, I do not know how much you give. I don't know how much you give. Uh, I learned a lot of people assume that I know how much they give. Um, and sometimes... Uh, people have assumed that pastors make decisions based on how much people give and who gives. In fact, sometimes people want me to know how much they give, which is gross. Um, I made the choice over two decades ago not to know, not to know. Um, I know how much I give. I know how much God wants to do through me, and so Shelly and I do that. But when it comes to you, here's what I know for a fact. Here's what I know for a fact. You're either going to choose to do it or you're not, whether or not I know. <laughs> you're either going to choose to do it or you're not. So knowing that, there's only one instance where I do have a feel for individual giving. There's, and, and that's if somebody is nominated for a church board position or you're serving on staff at this church. If you serve on the church board or you serve on the church staff and you do not model what we've talked about, that's an integrity problem for me. For me. Whether or not we like this or not, I don't know if I like it or not, I'm... I'm essentially the pivot point for discipleship in this church. <laughs> and that means that I'm preaching something that the people who I work closest with don't model. So that becomes an integrity problem for me. For me. Okay. Even then, even then I don't generally know the amounts. Uh, I ask those who manage our giving records to let me know of consistency and intent. Really, that's it. But even then, I don't know the amounts and I don't know the names. Now, back to the tithing and offering thing. You may be sitting here and thinking, 
Pastor Rich, 10%, are you kidding me? What is 10% of nothing? Like negative 10%. <laughs> it's, I mean, how in the world do you pull that off? And I want you to know I totally get it. And as simplified as I'm making all of this really kind of sound black and white and all that stuff, I know every family has unique circumstances. I know that there are dynamics with relationships that come into play. I get, I totally understand. Uh, before Shelly and I were married, uh, her family lived uh, south of Houston. They had just moved down there. And I did not know Shelly's family or parents really very well. And so it came time. I'd saved up the money and bought the ring, so I was going to ask her. Um, but I thought the right thing to do would be to call Shelly's dad. And so I did. I called Shelly's dad. I was standing in my dorm room. <laughs> and I said, hey, uh, I didn't call him dad at that point. I called him Mr. Christofferson. Uh, Mr. Christofferson, I, you know, I know that we've been dating for a while and stuff. I'd really like to marry Shelly. And so I'm asking for permission. They were not ready for the question. And the very, very first thing Shelly's dad said was, all right, Rich, well, you got to promise me you're going to go to seminary after you graduate. Well, we'll see. I'm like, I didn't go, by the way. <laughs> um, but then the second thing that happened that really kind of rocked my world a little bit was that was, that was a year earlier. Shelly graduated that next May, and I had another year of school to go. So here we are. We, the wedding is going to be in August. Here we are sitting at Shelly's graduation party in May. And she drove a 1989 Chevy Celebrity. And I drove a 1984 Toyota Corona that didn't hardly run, okay? I bought it for $400. So we're sitting there and we're thinking, Rich's car is not going to make it. Shelly's got this 89 Chevy Celebrity. And uh, so we're sitting at the graduation party. Shelly's parents are sitting there, still don't really know me very well. And we're talking. And I think Shelly, and I'll, I'll, I will say Shelly said this, but I was thinking it too. We owe so much money from school anyway we might as well take out another loan and buy a second car. Her dad stroked out. I mean, he freaked out. And he said, all right, Rich, here's your assignment. You're not going to marry my daughter in August until I see a budget. I was like, uh, I'm marrying your daughter in August. And so they flew back down to Texas. I went to Peoria, Illinois. And I sat down, and I sat down with my pastor. I was like, Shelly's dad said I can't marry her unless I have a budget. I need help. And he's like, all right, well, how much do you think you're going to have to work with? I was like, man, oh, my word. I mean, I was a full-time student. I had a part-time job. Shelly had just graduated. She didn't have any job. And I'm thinking, I thought, man, let's shoot for the stars, 20 grand. We're going to make it work on 20 grand. And so he helped me build a budget on 20 grand. And the very first thing he did was he said, all right, you got to give 10% to the church. And up until that point, I'd never given anything to the church. Nobody ever taught me. I didn't even know. I mean, I knew they passed the bucket, but I, I mean, I didn't have anything to give. So why would I give? And, and nobody just ever discipled me in that way. And so he's like, you got to do that. And I was like, man, 10% of 20,000 is $2,000. I'd never even physically held $2,000 in my hand. And you're asking me to give away $2,000 that I don't even know if I have yet. How is this? He just build it into the budget, build it into the budget. So I built a budget for $20,000. 
And here's the funny thing. Like, three days before we got married, Shelly got a teaching job. And our income for the year was $31,000. We were like, we're stinking rich. We, we will never make this much money ever again in our lives. And I built a budget on $20,000. Okay. Now, here we were, we're just married. In my mind, though, as I'm looking at that $2,000 out of $20,000, I'm thinking 10% of not very much is a whole lot, right? And it's hard not to look at it that way. Somewhere in that time, though, my pastor said this statement to me, and it kind of pops up every once in a while in my own mind as I look at opportunities that we might have to give or times when we feel like God asks us to sacrifice a little bit. Someone somewhere is living on 10% less than you are. Someone somewhere is living on 10% less than you are. So in other words, Rich, does the way I conduct myself financially, for better or worse, does that keep me from giving? There are millions of people in this country who live on 10% less than I do, who faithfully give, though, proportionately, out of what God has put into their lives. The question becomes, do I, Rich Doring, then live a lifestyle that allows God to give through me? That's kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? At the end of the day, and I think this is what Paul's getting at here, how does God want you to give? Just as we close, we talked about this last week. Give to God first. This doesn't have anything to do with money. Verse 5, the Macedonian church, they set the example by giving to the Lord first. Matthew 6, 19 through 21 says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, and here it is. That's where your heart is too. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God gets first in my life because God has my heart. So the first question today is, what has your heart? Or specifically, who? Who has your heart? A church that's one, and when I say that, I mean a church where we all participate in this, is made up of people who have settled the heart issue first. The heart issue comes first, of primary importance is where your heart is, because anything else after that follows where your heart is. The second thing is this. you got to commit to a plan. you got to commit to a plan. Um, guess what? God had a plan. God had a plan. Last week we talked about how the pattern that you and I follow when it comes to our giving, the baseline, the understanding of generosity, really just comes from Jesus. It comes from Jesus. And when Jesus gave... He gave with intent. His intent was you. He gave with a plan. He had a plan, and his giving had you in mind. So the bottom line is, if you fail to plan, you're going to plan to fail. I kind of have a feeling that maybe that was the issue for the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church struggled with pride. I mean, they had a lot to show. They had some things going on and everything. Oh, yeah, we'll give, we'll give, we'll give. But then Probably when Paul left or whoever, and all of a sudden it just kind of fell to the periphery, and then after it fell to the periphery, it just kind of fell. And they just didn't have a plan for how they were going to do what they said that they were going to do. If you don't have a plan, then what happens is our giving becomes leftovers. 
our giving becomes reactionary instead of proactive. And there's not a lot of worship in that. Our giving is actually an act of worship, not an afterthought. So can I encourage you to get a plan? If you're interested in help, there, in a couple of weeks, we're going to do a budgeting 101 thing on, on a Wednesday night. If you're interested, see me in the foyer afterwards. Just let me know, and I'll put your name down. But uh, I want to encourage you to get a plan. Not many things in life happen accidentally. Uh, there needs to be intent. So you need to commit to a plan. But ultimately, in the end, I just want to encourage you to let Jesus be the model. Um, there aren't many things that cause people to be as cynical or frustrated with the church or with pastors than this conversation. Um, so let's talk. When it comes to what you and I have talked about these last three weeks, how do you keep from becoming frustrated? How do you keep from becoming cynical when the pastor stands up here and talks about giving? How do you, how do you prevent that? you return to what Jesus did for you. If your heart is not captured by God's grace, then I can guarantee you what we're talking about here actually becomes an irritant to you. Uh, there won't be joy in the act of giving or a passion to even learn how if God doesn't already have every part of you anyway. As we close this focus, the only thing stewardship is, honestly, is a response. That's all it is. And so, um, every once in a while, there comes a moment where a pastor does need to stand up, I think, and encourage people to make a decision. Uh, I made a joke about this last week, but it's true. There was a time in my life where, um, when I would preach a stewardship series or a message or something like that, I would pass out cards, I'm going to commit to start giving, da-da-da-da, you write it down, then we'd play some music and all that kind of different stuff, and then people would come up and they would lay those commitments down at the altar. I just think you're either going to do it or you're not. That's just kind of where I'm at at this point in my life. Uh, I also used to do this thing, the 90-day giving challenge, where you do that, and if over the course of the next 90 days, if you've begun giving and you've suffered any undue hardship uh, because of that, the church will give you your money back. Oh, my word. What a horrible idea. Okay? I mean, in the years that I did that, nobody ever, nobody ever was like, hey, you owe me. Nobody ever did that, but oh, my word. I'm not interested in manipulating anybody to give. That's not... What I am interested in doing is having you give yourself. Give yourself. Nothing that we have, the air we breathe, the air we breathe is ours. None of it. It's all a gift. It's all a blessing. And he asks us to be blessed in and through us to others and to fulfill the mission of the church. And I just want to encourage you. Maybe you started giving at some point, you backed off, COVID did weird stuff, whatever. I just want to encourage you, and I want to invite you. And I'm putting myself in this position. I want to invite you to join me. Join me in this act of giving. Consistently, regularly, so that we can fulfill the mission that God has given us. I'm going to continue to give, and I'm going to continue to give sacrificially, and I'm going to continue to do that no matter what. I'm just asking you if you would do 
what I'm doing if you join me in that. I'm going to ask you to stand on the screen. Hannah's going to come up, and she's going to lead us pretty soon in our um, real-life benediction. But on the screen, you can see the different ways to give. I just want to encourage you to take advantage of one of those. But as Hannah comes, I'm going to pray, and uh, then she's going to lead us in our real-life benediction before we go. Father, I know that this is a sensitive topic, and I know it's hard to talk about these things. And I know that there's dynamics at play, Father, that I don't know anything about. So I pray that you would help me. Help me, Father, to uh, let go of uh, my own life so that you would have your way with me. I pray that we would all come to a place where we put ourselves on the altar and allow you to work in us and through us in the way you desire to. And Father, I know even in talking about this, there are people that are in financial duress right now in this room. So Father, I just ask that you draw close to them right now, that you would comfort them, give them guidance and direction in their lives, Father. Help them to find joy in their relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Jesus Christ go with us as we seek to love God as one. May he guide us in humility, gentleness, and patience as we love people as we have been loved. May the compassion of Jesus Christ be in us as we serve the world in word and deed. And may he bring us together again, rejoicing as his children as we live in real life with Christ. Go in peace.